Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. But now I can actually talk about things like equity, equity and anti-racism, and specifically, you know, being proactive in the fact that our coverage needs to be anti-racist and not just a bystander. To really fix what's wrong with journalism, newsrooms need to be remade to reflect their audience and cover the stories their audience cares about the most. It's not just good business, it's also the right thing to do. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. CC Way is the co-executive director of Open News, which is helping to build a more equitable future for journalism. On March 22nd, Open News marked the one-year anniversary of the DEI Coalition for Anti-Racist, Equitable, and Just Newsrooms, and she's here to talk about it. CC, welcome back to the podcast. So happy to be here. So I say welcome back because you and I spoke in 2016. It was a really a very nerdy tech conversation about I'd seen that you'd posted some images on your blog about you had uh, attended a Society of News Design conference and had used sketch notes. And I just thought it was really kind of neat how to do. And you, I invited you to come on the podcast to talk about it. Do you remember any of that? Yeah, I do. And I can't believe it's so many years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was like two years ago that we spoke, but I don't know what's happening to time. But that's not what I'm here to ask you. So what have you been up to <laughs> since 2016 and I guess now that you're at uh, Open News? I feel like with the pandemic, everything feels like eons ago and yesterday. So, I mean, since 2016, I was at ProPublica then and I was at ProPublica until the exact perfect timing, March 2020, when I started at Open News. So that's been a journey. But, you know, a lot has happened since then. So I went from working directly in investigative journalism. I think in 2016, I was still a reporter. And then I became an editor for a while. And then I had some sort of organizational masshead duties for a while. And that was all centered around, you know, how do we hire as an organization? How do we collaborate as an organization? While how do I edit everybody's investigative journalism to be the best it can be? Huh. That sounds like the approach that every newsroom takes. It's like more and more duties. That'll, that'll make you work more efficiently. Anyway, go on. <laughs> we can talk about that soon. But yeah, so then I came to Open News because I was really looking for an opportunity to affect change across the industry. And it felt like I certainly had the ability to do that at ProPublica, but definitely couldn't spend my job doing that, right? I had many things to try to figure out within the organization. And so Open News was kind of looking for someone and the job description was pretty open-ended. And I talked to folks here, I joined as the director of programs because what the programs were depended on me. And it was about like, why don't you decide after using sort of the experience I already brought in, but additional conversations with folks. One of the things I was really interested in exploring is what gaps exist when it comes to supporting journalists of color in the industry. And that has eventually led now to this one year anniversary of the DEI coalition. In 2020, when I you know, first stepped into that job, I was having conversations with people all year 
And then of course the summer of 2020 arrives and the Black Lives Matter movement is all over the United States and beyond. But journalism specifically had a real reaction to that and people cared about these issues in a way that I had never seen so concretely perhaps in the years prior. And there was a sudden change for me in terms of the language that I was able to use to describe what's going on. So what I mean by that is like, you know, previously I felt like diversity was really the only term we could use. And it was a term that is just getting at a tiny portion of what needs to change, right? Which is representation inside of these rooms. But now I can actually talk about things like equity, equity and anti-racism and specifically, you know, being proactive in the fact that our coverage needs to be anti-racist and not just a bystander. A lot of that has changed. And out of that summer came the DI coalition. And I'd asked anybody in journalism, if you're interested in this, if you care about these issues, work on this space with me. If you think it would be productive for us to, no matter where we work, to gather together, share knowledge, give each other advice and support as we try to make these changes, whether it's just in your newsroom or if it's as a freelancer, as an individual, right? In any sort of any space that you have, you want to do this, let's do it together. Hundreds of people signed up and I ended up with about a hundred active volunteers from across the industry, across the U.S. We worked for a couple of months together with me just sort of facilitating it. What kind of space do we need? What are the rules of engagement? What's the code of conduct? Like, how do we want to do this? And after a couple of months is when the DI coalition Slack launched in March a year ago. And that's the sort of milestone that we've hit now. So DEI stands for? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay. You know, you're saying all the things that I really agree with and, and that I have witnessed as well. I was surprised that America was was beginning to feel like it could have a conversation about diversity in 2020. I don't know if we're still there or if we've slid back a bit. But I was even more surprised to hear some of the dialogue that was going on in newsrooms in 2020 and 21, you know, especially since so many people were not working in newsrooms, that they were at home by themselves and, you know, they had a chance to think about a lot of different things. And, you know, now that, you know, a lot of people have returned back to the newsrooms, once again, I'm hearing people who are not particularly happy with the current situation. One of the things that, that I was kind of bemoaning was there was a lot of lip service for a very long time about diversity in newsrooms and nothing ever seemed to change. That it always seemed to be, yeah, yeah, we need to be more diverse. You know, we need to hire somebody. But even, you know, talking to uh, people who are hired, you know, to maybe make a an office more diverse, you know, A, felt a lot of pressure and B, felt kind of like, you know, I really just wanted to come here and work and do my best. I wasn't here, here to be your checkbox or whatever. And so it, for me, it, it always seemed that it was that management wasn't really kind of understanding what was going on and uh, was really kind of stepping up in any transformative way. Anyway, those are my thoughts about it. <laughs> but so the Slack channel, I mean, you know, Slack channel seems like such an obvious choice. How, you know, where did that idea come from? Yeah, that's a great question. We debated a little bit like, we all think it should be Slack. Should we consider something else, right? But it felt so newly universal, like so many newsrooms had already adopted Slack, not all of them, but many. 
people already were using it for their daily work. There were other Slack communities that already existed that were really popular. And I know that from personal experience because I'm also an administrator of the Journalists of Color Slack, which was created many years ago and has grown to be like thousands of members, something like that. And we just sort of saw this moment where like, it's something people are familiar with. It connects you so easily. And in, for so many journalists, it's a tool they already know how to use. So our main considerations were, is it safe enough? Like when we are trying to create a space where, you know, like your boss isn't going to be able to just come in here and see what you, what you say, or like, could someone subpoena us for all the messages or something like that? We explored that legal conversation with some attorneys as well. And we ended up deciding that Slack was totally fine for this purpose. And we also have a policy where every 60 days, or not every 60 days, after 60 days, messages are automatically deleted. What types of conversations are people having on Slack? Yeah. So I would say, I mean, it really ranges. There's often a lot of advice that's being asked for. So for example, like, you know, I'm in this particular situation or someone who reports to me brought a particular issue up with me and they explain it, right? And then they say like, here's how I think I should respond, but I feel like I need more context or more help. Can you help me? And part of the beauty of the Slack is that you can also post these types of things anonymously. And so people can't then pinpoint exactly who you're talking about, if they might know you. And so people kind of sort of share their experiences without outing any particular person while they're doing it. So how is that open to people? I mean, how, if I hear this and I say, yeah, I think I might be interested in, in becoming part of this, how do people go about doing that? Oh, yeah. So you just sign up. If you go to opennews.org, it'll be really obvious. You'll see something that says the DEI Coalition. And we have a sign-up form that you can fill out. And there are volunteers who are part of the DEI Coalition Slack that look at that every day. And then once they have time to sort of review and make sure that you're a real person, <laughs> then they send you an invite to your email and you can sort of just join right away. I'm a working journalist. I've got a podcast where I talk to a lot of journalists and, you know, I have conversations both on and off of the, the mic with a lot of different people. And, you know, diversity, representation, equity, the pay thing also is something that, that's really come to surprise me a lot, that there are more people having these, these conversations about, you know, there should be a living wage for journalists. There should be some boundaries around, you know, what my day is. This old idea that a journalist has to be available 24 hours a day, you know, I think that causes a lot of burnout in our industry. And it's probably one of the things that, you know, yeah. I mean, obviously there are other forces going on that are causing papers to fold and, and whatnot. But, you know, at some point people get burnt out. Are those the types of things, concerns that people are talking about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Topics, I mean, like pay, we talk about that a lot. Hiring, work-life balance, especially during the pandemic, right? We talk about that a lot, a lot, because people are much more aware of the toll it takes on people now. like. All these types of topics about like questioning the status quo of how we've been doing journalism or, you know, when it comes to being on 24-7, like the fact that when I was a journalism student, I 100% was under the impression that that was the thing to aspire to. Like I would become a great journalist and it would be valorized and incredibly strong of me if I could get the scoops at all hours at all times. 
And since, you know, growing in age and experience since that moment in my life, I've also realized, you know, it's like many industries have a 24 seven cycle that they have to deal with in some way, right? They have structures such that people don't just have to work 24 seven, right? Like whether it's shifts, or triage or different ways that they deal with it. I'm not saying that other industries don't burn people out, they do. But there are techniques that we could use that I think journalism is just, is only slowly inching towards realizing like, hey, maybe it would be healthier for everybody who works at our organization or in our industry if we start to actually transform some of these practices. So the the basic assumptions are different. Yeah, for sure. and. I've known a lot of journalists, you know, myself included, who got into this for very, you know, positive reasons. They thought they were going to be able to affect change. They wanted to represent communities. And it's very easy for a business to prey on them in the sense of, do you want to work, you know, 16 hours a day? You know, that's great. They're not necessarily going to put any bumpers up to stop you. And so when COVID came around, there were a lot of people, who were, as they began to realize the work-life balance thing, says a man who, who works six inches from where he sleeps, that, that there got to be boundaries. There got to be a, a time of the day where you, you unplug and you do something different. So for me, it, it gets interesting in these conversations when you talk about pay equity and you talk about work-life balance. And you begin to, to realize that many companies you know, they recognize you as an employee and what you contribute, but they want to keep certain things a certain way because maybe it's going to affect their bottom line, they think. Are there any resources for people who may need some type of counseling or some type of uh, trauma response for people who are covering uh, traumatic events? Yeah. For folks who are interested, there have been a variety of therapy relief funds that have been set up throughout the pandemic and are still going strong right now. And the organization that I think of right away is IWMF, the International Women's Media Foundation. They, I think for the first time during COVID, had funds that were available regardless of gender. Traditionally, you know, they've focus their efforts based on their name on women in journalism, but they now host, I think, multiple funds. One of them is for Black journalists specifically that was started by an individual journalist who just like started fundraising to help Black journalists pay for therapy in 2020. And eventually that got a home at the IWMF, but they also have a separate fund specifically targeted towards journalists who are covering things that are also adding trauma to themselves and to help them pay for therapy as well. Open news is not just, you know, a place where people can go and, and slack with someone else. You also offer resources. What type of resources can people access? So open news has a lot of different things that we do. Ultimately, we try to be additive as much as possible and flexible so that what that means to a different person can always apply. So I'll give you an example. We, for example, have a scholarships program that we open up multiple times per year, where if you wanna use that money to go to a journalism conference because your news org doesn't have the money or the budget to send you, like go for it. If you wanna use it to go to a training instead, you could do that. If you are a manager, but your news organization doesn't believe in you know paying for you to help become a better manager and you want to get some management coaching, like we're down for whatever moves your career forward, 
in journalism. However, we can help you do that. And so we have a scholarship fund like that. We also do things where we pair community members with one another that can help each other. So the example I'll give on that one is that we have this peer data review program specifically targeted to journalists who want to do data journalism. They are usually the only person with data skills in their newsroom, which means that their editor can't really help edit their data work or check it for accuracy. But there are other data journalists in the industry who have experienced the same thing. They want to help you. And so we sort of pair people up together. We set it up so that everyone agrees ahead of time, right? Like we're not stealing stories here. That's not the goal. We're helping each other out. And then they help sort of edit and vet your story and then help you get that published. And so we do like all sorts of things to connect people like that. The last thing I'll say is that we have this website source. It's source.opennews.org where we publish a lot of guides and behind the scenes work to a lot of journalism that we see across the industry. And the DEI coalition to tie that together has its own set of guides that have come out of the conversations there that anybody can check out. It's totally public. And so we had a guide recently published about how you can turn private conversations into public resources like we're doing constantly while building trust. And that guide came out of two other guides that we published in the last couple of months One based entirely on a conversation people had about, hey, if I am a white manager or just a manager, right, and I want to support my colleagues of color, like, how do I do that appropriately and respectfully? And people gave all types of tips and answers, and we compiled that all into one place that you can read. And then we have a whole other guide on hiring tips when it comes to making sure that in your hiring process, you're being equitable, right? And what does that look like each step of the way? you know, companies being equitable in pay. What do you say to somebody who comes to you and would like to, you know, implement things like these, uh, more transparency more, uh, around pay and, and equity in their newsroom? You know, what would you say to them? I would say that if you're interested in taking on something like making pay more transparent at your organization, but you haven't sort of dipped your toe in the water yet before, I would start small and work your way up. Versus if you've sort of helped your organization do other transformative things, then maybe you could start a little bigger. But there's lots of arguments to be made about the fact that, especially if your organization has been around for a while, if you have any type of pay study, right? So let's, this is a step back from making the pay transparent. Even if you just give a private consultancy or your union or whatever small group of people access to everyone's pay data. Every time we've seen this happen and people post the results, they've always found obvious pay discrepancy, like egregious amounts of pay discrepancy, whether that's between men and women or between journalists of color and white reporters, right? Like something is always there and it's really needy and it's only revealed through this process. Like, I'm sure that there are managers out there who have actually fixed this on their own and they don't get to tell anybody about it. But I would say that the larger the place, the more this is necessary. And if you want to start with just trying to figure out, like by having our pay data analyzed at all, we can know whether or not these things are true. And if we care about equity, then we'll address them. But then there are also other tiny steps. So Something that people are really asking for recently, and it's because 
a couple of places have passed it into law. New York City, where I am, is one of those places, which is that job postings are required to have a salary range. So you can't say nothing about salary anymore as the company that is looking for candidates. And that's like a really easy step, I think, right? It's a little bit of transparency. It doesn't immediately share what everybody in your organization makes in, in a way that you have to navigate quite yet. But it does give organizations a reason to need to have a bracket defined. And like, are the people who we currently have hired in that bracket? If not, you know, why is that the case? And if they make different amounts of money, are we sure that the reason why makes sense? Or is it left over from things that happened before? Like, the amount of money they made at their last job or how well they negotiated here or whether or not they ever ask for raises, right? So there are all types of tiny steps like that that you could try to take. And I really recommend that people test the waters a little bit and see where they can get traction because on the point of burnout, working on this stuff can really burn you out. It's so values-based, right, for folks. And if you feel like you're hitting your head against the wall all the time, you're going to become really disgruntled very quickly. You know, I had two people on from the Arizona Republic not too long ago. You know, they had formed a union and they were requested that, that Gannett do a, a study of, of pay. And of course, it revealed lots of disparity across the spectrum. And But it was necessary for them, to, you know, as you said, to do that, you know, in order to get the conversation rolling. But, you know, the company wasn't particularly happy to do it. I don't know if it was, it was that they either knew that there was a disparity or that they were just afraid of any information like that getting out. And it's also, I mean, I'm sure it's a lot of work and financial commitment for them, right? There are like tons of reasons why companies left on their own probably won't do this. But I will share an optimistic example, which is that when I talk to newer, newer, smaller companies these days, right? And folks are asking like, what can I do at this stage, right? Like before I become a large organization that has existed for a decade and have to like look back on my practices. What do I do now? And something that I have loved seeing, and I credit City Bureau, which is a newsroom in Chicago, right? They do a great job of this. So they're about to get bigger and they've started hiring more recently. And this happened during the pandemic. And so there are newsrooms like City Bureau, I know of a couple of others as well, where what they do first is they, instead of doing a pay equity study, they hire consultants to help them design how their pay should be going forward. Like, what should our raises be every year, right? Like, what are the bands? And then how do we tell all of our employees, like, what those bands are and what you need to do to, like, get to the next one, right? And so they have that all set up from the get-go so that they don't put themselves in a position to create pay inequity later. And that, I feel like, saves you so much time and energy to put in that effort at the beginning. Yeah. So I think there are very optimistic examples out there as well. And certainly, you know, for a legacy organization, things are put in place decades ago and people may not even understand why something is done a certain way. At this point, is this a concern? Not even just just pay. Is it easier for, you know, smaller companies, startups to sort of make these types of changes? Do these types of changes make it difficult for them to be competitive in a, in a market where sometimes it's, you've got really a, a small margin where you can kind of keep your company afloat? Yeah, this is a really good question. I feel like my personal point of view on this, so I've heard arguments both ways, right? So as a small company, 
you probably don't hire very often or you hire maybe in spurts. And you know, when I was at ProPublica at the very beginning, we were maybe 30 people and once a year, maybe we would hire somebody, right? And so the opportunity to change our demographic as a staff was few and far between versus larger companies have more turnover. And so they're hiring more often, even if they're not expanding. But, you know, I see that as a real challenge. I understand it, but I don't feel like, I don't feel like it really moves me. So for me, the opposite argument, which I connect with more, which is that even though you may be hiring less frequently, every hire can make a critical difference in the makeup of your newsroom, right? Like you're your return is so much higher because you have so few staff that every employee makes a huge difference and brings in like a totally different point of view, let's say. And that suddenly represents like 25% of your staff, right? And I don't even mean it on like a diversity report type of thing. I just mean like literally you'll feel it day to day. And if you're in a huge company, you gotta make massive hiring quantities right to shift that needle and you're kind of saddled with the history of your organization and the decisions that were made before you were even there and so I just feel like small organizations they're so much more agile and I would say like they have their challenges but I do think it's easier I think it's so much easier yeah, to affect a, a massive change. My experience with <laughs> with small companies has been sort of the other side of it is, you know, when they hire somebody who's a bad hire, who creates a terrible environment. I feel that those type of people, it becomes very apparent. <laughs> and then suddenly you have a lot of turnover because, uh, you know, the other people who've been sitting there suddenly don't like their job anymore. But people should like their jobs. People should like, you know, going into where they work. I think it's so much a cultural change, I think, in the, the zeitgeist of the, the journalism brain that it becomes hard to defend, you know, working in a certain type of place if you don't have a sense that there's going to be some positive change. If it's going to be stagnant, if it's going to be the same day in and day out, it's kind of like if you're a caring person and you think about things like this, then, then that should bother you and, should, you know, maybe hope to you know, not wait for somebody to make a change or quit, but maybe actually try to affect change in your business. So we've talked about a lot of things. What's the one thing you want people to know about open news? So I would say the one thing I want people to know about open news is that we are an extremely values-driven organization. And what I mean by that is we care a lot about the way that we do things and all of our programs, our annual conference, our scholarships, the DI coalition, our approach is always the same, which is we make it incredibly important and priority to us to make sure that we're always serving the community that we're trying to help in each of our programs. And one thing that I love about our work is that our aspiration is also to give you an experience that you may have never had before, that gives you sort of like a peek into the future if journalism and the community established, right, like was more equitable and everyone felt welcomed and embraced. Like, what would that feel like? Could you just do your work and be really happy, right? And we really aim for that. And so I would just highly recommend for folks who had never heard of us, if any of the topics we've talked about are interesting to you, you can go straight to those things. 
if you're just generally interested in like, oh, I want to, I want to experience that kind of world, like definitely just check out our site and see like, you know, what events might be interesting to you or like, do you want to get involved in something just to try it once and see how that goes? Because once people really come to say our annual conference each year, that's when they're like, oh, now I know what open news is all about. It's like, it's able to get me to that feeling that I want to have all the time in journalism. And why not have that feeling? <laughs> because, yeah. you know, we get into journalism because, I mean, everybody thinks of the cynical journalist, but in actuality, a journalist has to be optimistic because otherwise, why would they work? Because they believe that something that they're going to do in, in their daily work is going to affect change and make things better. And so, you know, why not be optimistic about the place that you work and put the same energy that you put towards you know, covering whatever's going on at City Hall to maybe making the environment that you work in more equitable, not maybe just for you, but for people, your fellow employees and the, and the people who are going to be hired later on. Cece, we could talk about this a long time. I love these topics, but we have to end this podcast at some point. So <laughs> let's talk again, not in six years, but sometime again soon. It was great catching up with you and good luck with open news. Thank you so much. It was so nice to be here. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, google play and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found if you'd like to help us grow our podcast like and share our episodes on social media look for us on facebook instagram and twitter it takes a lot of people to create an episode of it's all journalism nicola grisco produced this episode amber healy wrote our web content nick capre wrote our theme music Emilio brust helped with our booking steph thomas is our social media manager and i'm your host michael o'connell thanks for listening